ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Trying to get ready for you. Too. All right, Romans chapter 8. So far in the Gospel to the Romans, we've seen that all humanity is trapped in the broken, brokenness of sin and rebellion. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, chapter 1, or a Jew, chapter 2. All of us are trapped in the broken, brokenness of sin and rebellion. And the only thing that we need, the only thing that will help us in our condition is not our works, but but grace that's received by faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith puts us in a right standing with God. And the result of that is that we now have union with Christ and we are now empowered by God's Spirit to live lives that are changed. That's what we saw in chapters 5 through 7. In Adam, we sinned. In Christ, we live. And so now we're no longer under the law, but under grace. But as Paul tells us in chapter 7, that doesn't mean that the law has no value. Just because we're not any longer under its rule, it doesn't mean that the law has no value. The law had great value. It was there to help wake us up to the, the, um, the godlessness of our sin. It was like the man law came into the room. We were attached to this monster sin and he was sleeping and and we didn't know what life was like. We didn't know how bad life was until law came in and showed us he woke up our monster sin and we realized that, that if we were going to live, we had to kill sin. And the only way that that happens is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the law is like a mirror. It shows us our sin. It, it helps us to see how we how short we fall of God's glory. And so that's a good thing because it points us to the Gospel and that's what we need. We need the Gospel to free us from the condemnation that we are under because of sin. We need the Gospel to to grant to us justification that is a right standing with God. Well, now we're in chapter 8 and and so far we've seen that that we are no longer under condemnation. That's verse 1 and that we are now free to obey God and to love God by virtue of the Holy Spirit that now lives inside of us. Last time we saw the contrast between what it's like to be in the flesh and what it's like to be in the Spirit. And we finished last time in verse 8 by seeing that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, speaking about unbelievers. And now the first word of our text is, is however... And the point here is that that there is a contrast that's going to be happening. We saw that in the flesh we cannot please God, but now we need to see that that in the Spirit we can please God. That's the contrast that we need to recognize. Because the Spirit indwells believers, believers now have the ability and the possibility to be able to do what is right to please God. And so this morning we're, we're going to see that we do not live that way. We do not live according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. And the reason for that is because the Spirit indwells us. So, follow along with me as I read the text for this morning. 
It begins in verse 9 and it goes through verse 17. This is the Word of God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we also may be glorified with Him. The contrast that we saw last time was between those who are dominated by the, the flesh and those who are dominated by the Spirit. And what we are going to see is that as Christians, now the Spirit of God lives within us and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is no match for the indwelling of sin that remains. Part of our challenge as Christians is that we go through life and we understand this principle that the Spirit indwells us, but at the same time, at the same time we struggle with sin, don't we? And, and we, we wonder why we struggle with sin. If the Spirit indwells us, then why is sin just not going away? And what Paul wants us to know is that both of those things are true. We are still, we still have a sinful nature and yet the Spirit of God lives within us and He will, over time, do a work in us that will transform our sinful nature. That, that you should, your sinful nature should be much more subdued than when you first believed. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The power of indwelling sin is no match for the power of the indwelling Spirit. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So we're going to see several things, this, uh, two, two main things, and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll talk about the benefits uh, in the second one. First, the fundamental mark of a Christian in verse 9. Fundamental mark of the Christian. And then verses 10 through 17, the benefits of, of uh, being indwelt by the Spirit. The fundamental mark of a Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The main difference between you and an unbeliever, a pagan, the main difference between you and before you, the time you first believed is that you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. As a Christian, you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. You are recipients, recipients of all the blessings that come with being in Christ. And there is nothing that sets you part, uh, apart from the sons of Adam more than that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice what the text says there in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This passage teaches us, teaches us that to be a Christian means to be in the Spirit. It means to be in the Spirit, to be indwelt by the Spirit, and not to be led by the flesh. So, no Christian can be in the flesh, and no flesh can be in 
can be described as a Christian. That's what we saw in verses 5 and 6. Let's look back there. Verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh, those who are dominated by the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are dominated by the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Did you see the contrast there? It's not saying you are both and. Now, now, the fact that we're not in the flesh means that doesn't mean that we have no sin. It simply means that we're not dominated by the flesh. Remember, the sin is no longer our master. We've been freed from that master. We don't have to say yes to sin anymore. So, those who are Christians have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, we need to recognize that this is not a condition for salvation. Paul's not saying, be in the Spirit. He's not saying, have the Spirit of God in you. He's saying, this is who a Christian is. All Christians are those who are indwelled by the Spirit. It's the result of what's taken place at salvation. So, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? Look at verse 9. To be in the Spirit means to have the Spirit of God dwelling indwelling you or dwelling inside of you. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So what does it mean to be in the Spirit? If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. He's saying you are in the Spirit by virtue of the fact that the Spirit dwells in you. Flesh-dominated people are not in Christ. They do not have the Spirit. There is no life spiritually. There is no fruit but those who belong to Christ have the Spirit indwelling them. And that means that they are guaranteed to have the fruit of the Spirit produced in them. So, do you see a person who bears no spiritual fruit? Do you see a person who just bears evil? Then that person is an unbeliever. You are looking at an unbeliever. But do you see a person who is being changed? Do you see a person who is being sensitive to the direction of the Holy Spirit? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit start to grow in, in, in a person? That person is indwelled by the Spirit because that cannot happen apart from the work of the Spirit. The most fundamental, uh, the most fundamental mark of a Christian is that the Spirit of God indwells him. So, the distinguishing mark between you and flesh dominated, a flesh-dominated person is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, what does that result in? What are the consequences of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And that's what we see in the rest of the text. The benefits of being indwelt by the Spirit in verses 10-17, to 17, Paul lists seven of them. Number one, the first benefit that he lists is life. Verses 10-11. and 11, Life. That is both present spiritual life verse 10, and future eternal life, verse 11. So present spiritual life, this is the most basic benefit of having the Spirit of God in you, is that you are, this is kind of like a duh statement, you are alive. Spiritually, you are alive. That's the idea of being spiritual, that you have the Spirit within you. Notice how Paul describes it in verse 10. If Christ is in you. So, so, it's, it's not just that you have this one person of the Trinity in you. It is a sense in which you have Christ in you as well. The way that Christ indwells you is through His Spirit. That's why it's completely appropriate for us to say that Christ is in our heart. It's not that Jesus of Nazareth is in our heart. It's that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is in our heart through the person of the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Christ 
in Paul's letters, uh, some of later, some of Paul's later letters. So it's right for us to say that Christ is in our heart. It is. It's not that the, that Christ and the Spirit are identical. They're not. But they are so closely linked that when the Spirit of God dwells in you, it is as if Christ Himself is dwelling in you. Or it is that Christ indwells you. It's effectively the same thing. And this is why Jesus could say, before He left the earth in Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you all the way until the end of the age. Well, Jesus, You're leaving us. How are You with us? Do you remember what He said? I am with you because when I go, it's good for you because when I go, I can send the Comforter to come. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. So does Jesus, that is, Christ is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit and He remains with us. And so this first benefit is present spiritual life. You realize that we are, when we are physically born, we are born spiritually dead. Even though our body is is alive physically, we are dead spiritually. Notice in the text, verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. See, what the Spirit does is He does this work of transformation. He, He imparts something to us. He imparts to us spiritual life to those of us who are spiritually dead. That's what happens in regeneration, in salvation. And then that life continues. It doesn't, he doesn't grant us life and then back away. He grants us life and indwells us so that that life continues. And all of it takes place by virtue of our union with Christ. Look at the end of verse 10. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Not our righteousness as we've seen throughout Romans, but, but through the righteousness of Christ present spiritual life, and then also future eternal life in verse 11. Notice how the Spirit is described in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He's also going to give life to your mortal body is what He goes on to say. Here He's not called the Spirit of Christ, but, but really the Spirit of the Father. The One who raised Christ from the dead was the Father, but but here He's called the Spirit of the One who raised Christ from the dead. So He's talking about the Father. And He's saying, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He dwells in you. You also have the Spirit of Christ because Christ is in you, verse 9. And now He's saying the Spirit of the Father is in you. All three persons of the Godhead dwell in you. And, and um, that's a great comfort that we can have. Notice what the Spirit has done and guarantees in us. He, he guarantees future eternal life. If, if the Spirit, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So think about the great power that was necessary for Christ to be raised from the dead. If that Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, He was the agent of the Father's power. The Father decided, I'm going to raise Christ from the dead. The Spirit's my agent to make that happen. If He did that, Will He not also raise your mortal body from the dead? That's the point. If the Father has gifted the Spirit with that kind of power to break the bonds of death in Jesus Himself, then how much more will the Spirit be able to give life to your mortal bodies? And so we have this promise of present spiritual life. The Spirit lives within us. But we also have this promise of future bodily resurrection. 
that if Christ was raised from the dead, so we too will follow Him in resurrection. And, and if we doubt that, all we have to think about is that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same Spirit that will raise us from the dead. We have a promise of future resurrection. So the first benefit of being indwelled by the Spirit is life. Second is service, verses 12-13. through Service. The second consequence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that we are under obligation now to serve God. Notice what he says here, verse 12. So if, basically, let's summarize the first part. If the Spirit of God dwells in you and He grants to you life, then, now let's read verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, not to serve it, to make it our master. But but if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But, but here's what we are under obligation to do. It, by the Spirit, we are to be putting to death the deeds of the body, and in doing so, we will live. So, since we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have life in the Spirit, the natural result is that we're going to walk in the Spirit. That is, that we use the power that is at our disposal, the Holy Spirit of God, to put to death sin and to live in holiness. Remember, we have a change of masters, don't we? No longer are we bound to our former master sin. Now we are, we are free to serve a new master. We're not any longer under the realm of the flesh, but under the realm of the Spirit. We have a new nature. Old things have passed away. In other words, our obligation has changed, hasn't it? Our loyalty has shifted. We are on the opposite side of the battlefield. We're no longer uh, required to say yes to sin. We no longer have to do that. We now have an obligation not to say yes to sin, but to obey the Spirit. And so Paul says, listen, now that the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are under obligation not to the flesh any longer, but, but now you're under obligation to live according to the Spirit. Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die, verse 13 says. Notice the change in pronouns from verse 12, so then we are under obligation to verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh. The point is is that when the Spirit makes His home in, in our lives, we now have a new master, a new mindset, a new course of life. And, and that includes our desire to resist the flesh, to, to, to put it off. So what does a Spirit-dominated life look like? It looks like putting to death the deeds of the flesh at the end of verse 13. And you know, the fact that you have the Spirit indwelling you means that you have the ability to put sin to death. That doesn't mean that we're going to have permanent victory over sin on our path toward perfection. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But, but that more and more, over time, you and I are killing the sin nature we're putting off sins that, that once beset us, that slowed us down, that turned us away from God. We're putting those off. And while we haven't arrived or reached full uh, perfection spiritually, we are much better than when we first believed, aren't we? If that's the case in you, that's because that only can happen because of the Spirit of God indwelling you. And the way that we're putting off the deeds of the flesh, Paul's going to get into this more. But the way that we do that is by killing, uh, by by being 
complicit with the promptings of the Spirit through the Word of God. Notice that this is a present tense verb at the end of verse 11. He says, I'm sorry, verse 13, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's saying, as you continue to do this, you, the, the consequence of it, the result of it is life. You don't gain life through this. You gained life through your, through your belief in Jesus Christ. We already saw that. But, but the result of you living according to the Spirit is that you have life. You will result in final, eternal life. So, is that something that describes you? Are you a person who is putting off the deeds of the flesh? Are you a person who is complicit with the Holy Spirit? Third benefit of being indwelt by the Spirit, verse 14, very similar to the second one, but it is holiness in verse 14. Holiness for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. So life, service, and holiness. Here's the point. The Spirit is going to lead you into holiness. He's going to lead you. That's the idea. If Are you being led by the Spirit? Would the Spirit ever lead you into sin? Would the Spirit ever cause you to sin? No. So the Spirit is leading you away from sin to put off sin, to, to obey God. And all who are, generally speaking, being led by the Spirit of God in that way, not perfectly again, are the sons of God. And so this should give us confidence and hope, shouldn't it? Because the clear sign that a person belongs to Christ is that they are indwelt by the Spirit and that those who are indwelt by the Spirit are being led by the Spirit. People naturally return to who they really are. That is, they they end up being who they actually are. They can put on a front for a while, right? Prodigal sons can, for a time, turn away from their father. But eventually they'll come back to him and they'll follow him in holiness. Prodigal pigs, on the other hand, return back to the mud, don't they? They can be cleaned up for a short period of time, but eventually they're going to go back to what they enjoy the most. And you see, when the Spirit of God indwells you, yes, there will be times when you have setbacks, when you turn away from, when you betray God, like Peter did. But the true children of God will always come back to Him. They will come back because they're being led by the Spirit. The Spirit is continuing to prompt them to change. You need to change. You need to grow. You need to get out of that sin. You need to get out of that mud. Turn back to Christ. Number four, sonship. In verse 15, fourth benefit of being indwelt by the Spirit is sonship. Sadly, in our politically correct culture, we have lost the sense of the promise that we have here. So let me read it. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This idea of adoption as sons, sometimes we can downplay it by making it more gender neutral and saying that we are adopted as sons and daughters. We want to include everybody. That's why we want to do that. But the problem there is that um, to be adopted as God's son is actually a great promise. It means to be an heir of the Father. What you need to recognize is that in the Old Testament, the son was the one who was the rightful heir to God's promise, right? It was the son. And so when we 
change this to being adopted as sons and daughters, we miss some of the significance of what God is trying to show us, which is that all of us, whether man or woman, becomes a son of God in the sense that He's an heir of God. And He receives all the great blessings of being treated as a son, as it's understood in the ancient Near East. And so the point is that, that we, this, great, this is a great benefit, that we are adopted as sons. That the Spirit now indwells in us so that we recognize that while we once were a slave to sin, we now move to being a son of God. But sometimes we think about it this way. I, I used to be a slave of sin. Now I'm a slave of God. And, and I don't want to downplay that at all. I don't want to minimize that because... Paul certainly does talk about us being bond servants of Christ, that we are, in some senses, a slave to God. But, but here's what we can't miss. And that is that when we were taken away from our slavery from sin, God put us into a place where we now are treated as His Son. Now, what, how, how, does that, how does that shape how we think about God if we think of ourselves as a slave of God versus thinking of ourselves as a son of God? You see, if we think of ourselves always as a slave of God, then serving Him, pursuing holiness, can be very much a drudgery. But when we recognize ourselves as sons of God, then we see that, that God is on our side. He will not abandon us. He's, he's with us. We are family members in that sense. Look at the text here in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. So see, that's the, the drudgery idea. You don't have that spirit anymore. Now you recognize the great privilege that you have. It doesn't lead you to fear again, like this is going to be terrible. But rather, it's all going to be good because we have been adopted as sons and it causes us to cry out in this way, Abba, Father. Think of this. Carefully this morning, Christian, you have been adopted by God and you will be treated as a son. Now, adoption in the, in, in the Old Testament was really abnormal, if not non-existent. But for the Romans in the first century, adoption was a normal practice because a man who had no children wanted to make sure that he had an heir, someone to pass the estate on to. And so he would adopt, adopt a child or a teenager or maybe even an adult for the purpose of making that child his heir and also to perpetuate his family name. And as a result, the newly adopted son could expect to receive all the great love and direction from his father so that he could carry out his family name and resources. And here's the truth this morning. If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are freed now to serve your new master. But he's not a slave owner. He's a father. You see, we don't become unenslaved to sin in order to become re-enslaved to God. Instead, we become unenslaved in order to be adopted as sons. And the Holy Spirit is the agent by which you enter into that new relationship. He makes us to be sons. And as sons of God, amazingly, at the end of verse 15, we see that we enjoy all the great privileges that Jesus does. Isn't this amazing? 
We have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the same way that Jesus talked to His Father. He was in the time of trouble. He was at Gethsemane praying that the cup would be removed for him, from Him and He cr- cried out, Abba, Father. And we, the Spirit causes us to cry out in the same way. And the fact that we can use this same phrase that Jesus uses tells us that we are a part of His family. Abba, Father. We're not half-children or contingent children. Upon, we'll see how it works out. We are as much a part of God's family as Jesus is. We cry out to Him in the same way. And as Paul says in, in I think, Ephesians, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So, all the great blessings that are afforded to Jesus for all of His righteousness we are going to enjoy those things with Him. We are co-heirs with Him. So, life, service, holiness, sonship, we need to keep moving. Number five, assurance. Verse 16, assurance. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So, we already saw in verse 14 that those who are being led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So, you want to see who are the sons of God. You want to see if you're a son of God, then are you being led by the Spirit? Well, here it tells us that that the Spirit actually testifies. He speaks in some way. He communicates with our spirit, our immaterial person, the the immaterial part of us, I should say. And He confirms that we are children of God. Now, how precisely does He do this? I can tell you how He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it through verbal communication. He doesn't do it through a dream or through a still, small voice. But apparently, He does it through the means of grace. As we're listening to the Scriptures, as we're praying to God, serving the needs of the body of Christ, apparently the Spirit produces in us fruit of the Spirit and causes us to be able to see those things as being given to us by Him. And as a result, we know that we are a part of God's family. Assurance. Number six, inheritance. Verse 17. And if children, heirs, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is uh, very similar to what we saw with adoption. Since you are a son of God, you are also an heir of God. You are an inheritor of God. You are in Christ. And so that means that God is going to treat you like He treats Christ. You're going to be a recipient of all the great rewards that are coming in the next life. And so we need to have our eyes fixed not on the things of this world, things that are passing away, but on the things that are to come, the, the future confidence that we can have in the final rewards that are going to be giving, given us to, by the Father. You see, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For us, since we are gods by virtue of our union with the Son of God, we become co-inheritors with Jesus of God's promises. So you can be confident that you'll receive what Jesus receives. The same kind of treatment that God gives to Jesus is how God is going to treat you. Final um, blessing or benefit of being indwelt by the Spirit that Paul lists is suffering. The end of verse 17. If indeed, so we're going to be heirs if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified him with Him. The only way that you will receive the inheritance that has been promised to you is if you first go through suffering. 
Now, isn't this an amazing result of being indwelt by the Spirit? I mean, we were feeling really good up until this point. All these great benefits and we can go and tell the world about these great benefits that we have in the Spirit until we get to this one. If you are indwelt by the Spirit, you will suffer. And this is part of what it looks like to be God's child. That you suffer for your Father. Yes, we are heirs. Yes, we are inheritors of God's great goodness and in His rewards. But our union with Christ means not only that we will be blessed with Christ, but also that we will suffer with Christ in this life. The glory of the rewards that that have been promised to you will be enjoyed in the kingdom, but they only will be received by those who participate with Christ by going outside the camp and suffering reproach with Him. I love the verse of the song, Must I be carried to the clouds on flowery beds of ease? All others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. And that's a verse that we could probably quote in our country, just to any average citizen, right? But the songwriter is not talking about Americans. He's talking about Christians. And he's saying, should Christians make it to heaven without suffering persecution? And the answer is no. Now, it may not come in the form of bruises and blood and physical death, although it could. But it most certainly will come in the form of reproach and shame and potentially being ostracized by people that you love, by being mocked by them. And this is a benefit of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That you will suffer. And I say benefit because the disciples, when they recognized following the death of Christ in the book of Acts, they had to be beaten for the sake of their proclamation of Christ. They, they counted themselves... Uh, they, they counted a, a, a great joy to be able to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we have all these benefits, but included in them is suffering. Now we're going to talk about more about suffering next week and how that plays into our lives as Christians and how we can how we can look at our situation in life, recognize that there's sin, so how does that work with the indwelling of the Spirit? We've seen that. Now we're going to look next time at what about suffering? If there's suffering going on, how can I know that the Spirit of God indwells me? And that's what really what Romans 8 is all about. It's help to help give us confidence that though these things are going on, sin and suffering, the Spirit still indwells us and He helps us in in our weakness. Let me just leave you with two principles here quickly. First, the Gospel is the answer to your greatest problem. The Gospel is the answer to your greatest problem. Perhaps you're here today and you're not sure what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me encourage you to first acknowledge that you're a sinner because as a sinner, you are under the wrath of God. You stand before the holy God of the universe and He demands that all your sins be paid for. Second, you must recognize that you cannot pay for your sins. That you cannot pay for your sins on your own and expect to have a right relationship with God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to earn merit before God. Third, you must recognize that God provided a way to be reconciled with Him. A way that you, can, that, that you can have peace with God where once there was hostility, now there's peace. 
because Christ breaks down the dividing wall between you and God. And it's only the only way that you can have that peace is if you turn from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ is the only means of your salvation. It's what the Bible calls repentance and faith. And if you don't know what that means or you don't know how you can have the Spirit of God indwelling you, then can I just encourage you to do one of two things today? Talk to one of the members of our church or read through the Gospel of Mark this week or do both. That would be, be great. See what Jesus Himself has to say about repentance and faith in the Gospel of Mark. The Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of God, says in Romans 10.10, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Gospel is the answer to your greatest problem. And that is hostility with God. And then secondly, the Spirit is the agent of all that is good in your life. Everything that happens in your life that is good and that comes from you that is good is because the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit is the agent of all that is good in your life. And so our job is not to sit back and do nothing, but to be complicit with the Spirit. We need to say yes to righteousness. And, and, and our answer, yes, does not begin with us. I hope you recognize. When you say yes to the Spirit, it's because the Spirit's actually working within you, compelling you to say yes. Not as a robot, but, but as a person who has a choice. What does being complicit with the Spirit look like? How do, we, how do we kill sin? How do I know that the Spirit of God lives in me if I continue experiencing suffering? Those questions are what Paul intends to answer in the chapters ahead. But for now, what we need to know is, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to know this morning, is that there are great benefits for every person who has the Spirit of God living in them. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us life. Apart from You, we would be nothing. We would accomplish nothing good. And we would be destined for an eternity of nothing but, it, but pain and separation from You. And so, Lord, we praise You for the Spirit giving life through the power of the Gospel. And, Lord, we want to live in light of that. We We want to... We never want that message to grow old in us. We, we don't want to become apathetic or complacent in our lives as Christians and think that we don't have to do anything. Lord, help us renew our love for You this morning as we reflect on the truth that, that we have been adopted as sons, that we are heirs, that we have life and, and service and holiness through the Spirit who indwells us. Lord, give us assurance of our relationship with You. Help us not to see um, our life with You as a drudgery and as slavery to You, but more as sons and daughters of You. Lord, we, we want to, to um, be good representatives of You. We want to enjoy all the blessings that come in being a part of Your family, but also we want to represent You well. And so we pray for Your grace. May we be filled with the Spirit as, as we are controlled by Him, as we learn Your Word more and, and make it more a part of our lives and our decisions. But we need strength 
We need Your power to do that. So empower us through the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.